0: Good morning, fellowship. Good morning. Good to be with you guys. Before we jump into the text this morning, we've got some work to do. It is a privilege and a responsibility for us to intercede for the events in our world and for our brothers and sisters that are scattered in different places. And this morning, I wanna lead us in some intercessory prayer for what's happening in Ukraine right now. I wanna read to you a couple of things that we received this week Uh, The first is from a pastor in Ukraine, um, a church right near Kiev. His name is Vassal Ostry. I don't know him, but I've read about his story. He leads a large church right on the outskirts of Kiev. He also is a professor at Kiev Theological Seminary. Here's what he wrote, which I thought was profound. If the church is not relevant at a time of crisis, then it is not relevant in a time of peace. During this critical moment, our church, which is not only a worship center, has also become a place of service to our city. We've recently conducted several trainings on performing first aid. People are learning how to apply a tourniquet, stop bleeding, apply bandages, and manage airways. These lay people aren't going to become doctors, but this has given them confidence to care for their neighbors if necessary. When this is over, the citizens of Kiev will remember how Christians have responded in their time of need. And that has always been true of Christians. That has always been true of the church. In times of crisis, in times of need, we are called to serve in the name of Jesus Christ. And I wanna read you one more thing. Uh, many of you know, two of our global partners are in Russia. Uh, one of them named Denis Lam He has a remarkable story of coming to Christ and he's ministering in an area where there are very, very few believers. Uh, He wrote this to us this week. He said, hello, church family. We wanna ask you to pray about the situation. Hostilities began today. So he he wrote this on the day that that, uh, Russia invaded Ukraine. Many of our brothers from Donetsk and Luhansk are being taken by force to war. Many from the Caucasus went to war. My cousin was also taken away. This will bring a lot of suffering to everyone, and the economy is also suffering. Prices immediately rose. Please pray for peace. Two pastors on both sides of the border in this conflict, and if you're like me, it's just, it just feels so sad and and at least from my perspective. Why? What the pointless bloodshed. And yet here we are in this series on Ruth talking about God's providence, God's sovereignty. God's going to use, he's going to work. He's going to use this for the gospel to go forth. I believe that, but we need to pray and we need to intercede for these brothers and sisters in this part of the world. So bow your heads with me now. Let me lead us in this. Father, what we're doing right now and coming to you in prayer for these people in a different far place from the world is not a small thing. It is not a passive thing that we do. To to pray for them, to call out to you, to intercede for them is an active way that we show our commitment as a family of faith with these people, most of whom we've never met on the other side of the world. So right now, Father, there's fighting going on, there is intensity, there is loss of life that is happening right now and we pray that you would intervene in a miraculous way and that you would bring peace to this land. I pray for the, the, the body of Christ in Ukraine, in the church that we just read about, that, that those that have stayed and, and many have stayed for the purpose of serving and sacrificing, I pray, Father, that Jesus Christ, the name of Jesus Christ, would be profoundly shared and told that you would glorify yourself even through the tragedy of war. I pray, Father, for those in Russia many of whom, most of whom are probably likely grieved because of the losses and the struggles. And I pray, Father, that you would encourage them, and I pray, Father, that you would allow the church in Russia, albeit small, to shine a bright light in a season of darkness. And specifically, pray for our partner, Denis Lam. We pray for his prayer requests that you would encourage him in that community as their men are being enlisted and taken away to fight in a a war that uh, we believe would not be what you would desire. And I just ask God that you would redeem, redeem the mess, be at work in this, even this. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. If you did not get one of these books on the way in, we want you to have one. We started our Ruth series last week. Maybe you were here for that. You maybe picked up a book then, but go ahead and grab one now. Don't be shy. If you didn't get one, just get up. You're gonna want it. Um, What I love about this book is it's got the text on the left. It's in the same translation we teach from, which is the English Standard Version. On the right, it's just got blank space for you to write or or draw. I remember my dad used to tell me, "He's like Rob. It's okay for you to draw in church, but try to draw something connected to the sermon." You know, he's just planting that little seed in me even then. You know, so yes, you can uh, draw aircraft and spaceships and connect it to the Bible. I'm, I'm living testimony. But uh, we're in this series called Ruth, that the subtitle is "Ordinary Providence." And I want to talk about both of those words. The word "providence," as Lloyd explains last week, it means God is in control of all things. God is in control of all things. We believe that's what the Bible teaches. I like the way Lloyd said it last week. He said, that says easy, but lives hard. The book of Ruth is mostly about the lives hard part of that equation. Ruth's a hard book we tend to think of it as a love story. You know, Ruth and Boaz, and yes, we'll get there, and all those kinds of things. It's not, it, it's not a romance. What, what this story actually is, it is a love story, but it's more about God's love for his people. It's about the unseen ways God directs and governs our lives, ways that are often confounding, but always purposeful, always moving us closer and closer toward himself because he is love. In Lloyd's intro last week, he said this phrase that he said we're going to keep saying because it's really important to understanding Ruth and it's really important to applying Ruth to our own lives. Here's the phrase. There's more than meets the eye. That's true in this story, God's direct voice never shows up in this story, but God's hand is all in the story. There's more than meets the eye. It's also true in our lives. There's reason and purpose we're in this book right now. I don't know what's, going, what's in your life. I don't know what the losses are that you're struggling with. I don't know how God, through the, the Holy Spirit in you, will connect your own circumstances to this ancient text, but he will. And so not only as we read the story of Ruth, but as we engage our own lives, we're gonna keep this in mind. There's more than meets the eye. There's more going on in your life right now than meets the eye. God is at work in ways that are invisible to you. There's more than meets the eye. So let's just all say that together in unison. I wanna drill this into our brain. Say it with me. There's more than meets the eye. Here's the outline that we'll use as we walk through the book. We'll put it on the screen as well. Chapter one, you might think of the subtitle of chapter one, God's providence is Hard. Keyword weeping. Chapter two, God's providence is hard to see. Keyword working. And you know, whatever, even when we can't see it, he's working. You sound familiar? We just sung those words. Chapter three, God's providence works with your faith. Keyword waiting. In chapter four, God's providence brings our good and his glory. Keyword worshiping. So what you're gonna track with this book is the life of Naomi. She's the main character of the book. It's actually not Ruth. The book's named after Ruth. If there's good reason for that, we'll talk about it as we get there. But the main character of the book is Naomi, Ruth's mother-in-law. You're going to see her weep. You're going to see her watch God at work. You're going to see her wait. And you're going to see her worship. And if you track Naomi through this book, you're going to understand what all is happening, weeping, working, waiting, and worshiping. Let's dive into the first five verses. Warning, these are hard verses this morning, but they are still God's word for us. Follow along in your copy of God's Word, in your Bible, in the Ruth Journal. It's also on the screen. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land, and a man of Bethlehem and Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech. The name of his wife, Naomi. The names of his two sons were Malon and Kilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem and Judah. They went into the country of Moab and remained there. But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died, and she was left with her two sons. These took Moabite wives. The name of the one was Orpah, and the name of the other, Ruth. They lived there about 10 years, and Malon and Kilion died, so that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. This is the living word of God for us today. I can't easily think of a story in the Bible that sort of starts in, in more difficulty than that. I thought I, I might visually illustrate it to you on, on this screen if you want to track the trajectory of the book. It, it starts low. The days of the judges ruled. Lloyd explained this last week. That was not a good time in Israel's history. It was a hard time. There was a famine even lower. You know, you have this man that goes to to sojourn in Moab, and Lloyd talked about this last week. That that you know, Moab's not a good place. Moab is not where you'd want to go. So, this family is starving. They heard that there's food in Moab. They go to Moab, but, but Moab is traditionally an enemy of Israel. Look down at verse three Elimelech dies. Massive, important, tragic. We don't know how he died, we just know he died. Then the, uh, the, the two sons get married. Now, this is actually a positive thing in the story, and you're going to see why it's positive as the story progresses. So, you know, you have this, this marriage that is a little bit of an uptick. Okay, so maybe there's hope. Maybe God is actually going to provide for them after all, but then the sons die. It's like double downer right here. It's just tragedy. The woman was left without her two sons. I mean, the, the narrator's going out of his way to just emphasize how tragic this was. I mean, it's like flatlining down here, right? So here, this is how the story starts. So there are two questions that I want us to wrestle with as we dig into this tragic down, 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 up, down, down, down storyline this morning. The first is, how should we think about loss in light of God's providence? That's a theological question. The second is a practical application. What should we do with losses in our own lives? I want you to feel the tension of question one. We're talking a lot about tension this morning because if you believe God is love and you're open to the fact there's also loss and pain in the world around you and in your own life as well, well, there's a tension Why is it so hard if God is good? And then we'll talk about that second question is, well, what do we do in light of that? How how are we to live out that tension? Let's start with question one. What should we think about loss in light of God's providence? This is actually the question that the book of Ruth addresses. If you analyze the plot of the book, you might describe it as problem resolution lots of stories you and I know are written that way. Think how many books, movies, starts off within the first five minutes, 10 minutes, you know, sometimes even less than that, there's a problem. And the whole rest of the story is about how that problem is going to be resolved. Same thing. So, a good way to understand this book, problem resolution. There's A surface-level problem in Ruth, and then there's a deeper theological problem in Ruth. I don't mean a problem like there's a theological problem, but there's a theological question that's being addressed. So let's look at these. The surface-level problem is the death and emptiness of Naomi's life resulting from the loss of her husband and sons. We're five verses in. Problem has been stated. This woman has no means of providing for herself. We'll talk more about that in a little bit. But the deeper problem is what we've already said. If God really is sovereign, providential, in control of all things, what do we do with the fact there's so much loss in this story and in our real lives? Surface level, deeper problem. As we wade into this, you have to know two things about the cultural context of this story for you to really feel the tension that this book is grappling with. In the time of that day, society was not organized like our society is. There weren't strong state or national governments. There there wasn't really a sense of provision for people working together and caring for the marginalized. It was a little bit of, of every family for itself. Now, there was an organizational system that I want to explain that was based around the patriarch of the family. So this, this illustration gives you a little bit of an idea of how society was structured in Israel and in most of the world in the ancient Near East at the time that this, these events occurred. Notice what's at the center, the patriarch's household. Now, the patriarch was a really important part of their culture. The patriarch was often the the oldest living male of the extended family. So the father, the grandfather, you know, whoever's still the oldest. Listen to what he was actually responsible for. The patriarch was responsible for the economic well-being of the family. He was responsible for enforcing the law. They didn't have police to do that. The patriarch was supposed to enforce the law within his family. And he had responsibility to care for members of the family who became marginalized through poverty, death, or war. So let's say he had a son who married a woman. They would live all together on the family property, kind of like a compound. They would work the land together, the grandfather now, the son, his wife, their grandkids. Let's say the son died. You now have a widow and you now have orphans. It was the patriarch's responsibility to care for that family. Now, moving outward, sort of in, in centrality and purpose, you have the clan. You know, this is the broader, broader extended family. You have the tribe, you know, 12 tribes of Israel, and then you have the nation. So if I were describing my identity in this culture, if I lived back then, I'd say, I'm Rob. I am of the household of Robert okay, my father who is still living. And I would first say him first. Second of all, I'd say, I'm of the clan of the sweets, you know, the extended broader family, the clan. I'm of the tribe of Benjamin or whatever the tribe is, and I'm of the nation of Israel. And I would say it in that order because that was sort of the, the importance and the centrality of my identity. So in, in this system, you can see the importance of the patriarch's household. I wanna just teach you really quickly some Hebrew. Beit means house, Ab means father. So the Beit Ab is how they would describe that central part of society, the Beit Ab. And so they would use that phrase all the time. What Beit Ab are you a part of? Or, or you're provided for through your Beit Ab. By the way, Lloyd shared last week, Bethlehem, which is the town that this family came from, is Beit, or sometimes spelled B-E-T-H, Beth. Lechem, bread. House of bread. So that's Beit Lechem, Bethlehem. This is Beit Ab, House of the Father. Now, these Beit Abs were so critical that if you weren't connected to a Beit Ab, you were immediately vulnerable in that community. So this is exactly what happened. They they, as a family, this Beit Ab of Elimelech, they move away from the tribe, away from the clan, they go to Moab. And in Moab, the patriarch dies. Tragedy, immediate fear. The good news is Naomi had two adult sons, and so the oldest would then become the patriarch. He dies. The youngest would then become the patriarch. He dies. And you have three widows, and they are suddenly the most vulnerable people in the world because they're far away from home. You know, Naomi is. Naomi's from Bethlehem, and she's way over here in Moab. They don't have a patriarch. They don't have anyone to provide. In that society, in in women, there's nothing right about this. But in that society, you could not provide for yourself. There was no means for you to provide for yourself. There was no way that you could provide yourself. You're always only being provided for in connection to a male. That's how that society worked. But God's going to bring redemption. But before we get to the redemption, that's weeks from now, let's just feel the tragedy that you have this woman, Naomi, that suddenly, you know, she leaves Israel in in a good place, you know, under the home of her patriarch, her, her husband in this case. And now she's left as one of the most vulnerable people in the world. And so the tension between Naomi's tragic loss and God's providence is clear. Now, there's one more thing I want to understand. I want you to understand culturally going on so you really feel this tension. How could a good God let this terrible thing happen? Because the Hebrew people understood that God was love. God was chesed. This is the Hebrew word most often used to describe um, God's loyal, faithful love. You can see the definition on the screen. It is sometimes um, translated in your Bibles, loyal love, loving kindness, faithfulness, unfailing kindness, devotion, Oftentimes, it's just translated love. Uh, If you know the Greek word agape, which is sort of like this um, um, selfless love, the Hebrew hesed is similar to that. It's this God is so loyal, he's so committed to his people, his covenant, that to violate his loving commitment to them would be to violate his own character. Where did they get this idea that God was love? From God Himself. Hesed was God's self revelation of His character when He proclaimed His identity to Moses. You don't need to turn there, but it, it's on the screen. This is one of the most important passages in the Old Testament. The Lord passed before Him, Moses. Now, this is God establishing the covenant with his nation. He says, here's who I am. You need to know who, who you're going into covenant with. The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. That is Hesed. And faithfulness, keeping steadfast love, chesed, for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. I want you to think about how different that understanding of God is compared to any other people all around the Hebrew people, any other people from the beginning of history, you know, other than those that God revealed himself to, you know, Noah and others. Most of the people at that time of history, they didn't know the the true God. Their perception of God was polytheistic. You know, their imagination was you have a God of the sun, you got a God of the harvest, you got a God of fertility, and sometimes they fight. Sometimes they're petulant and fickle and selfish. And the tragedies that you and I experience in our lives are because the gods are mad at us or the gods are mad at each other and we pay the price for that. That's the worldview all around the Hebrew people. Into that worldview, God reveals himself as something different. I am Hesed, I am loyal, faithful, love, and I cannot even violate that because it's my own identity. And so the Hebrew people, when they look around, they're like, well, how can there be so much tragedy in our lives? If our God is faithful and loving and committed. All the other people around them were like, well, I don't have any tension with tragedy and providence because I believe gods aren't loving. They're selfish. Hebrew people feel the tension. You and I should feel the tension. If you believe God is loving and you have loss and struggle in your life, you should feel tension. This is the tension that Ruth is going to address. Now, as we walk through this study together, I want you to remember this is who God is. And so at the end of verse five, you have a widowed woman who has just lost the three most important people in her life. And not only their emotional ties, they're her only place of safety and provision. What is she going to do? I want to turn our attention to the second question I want to ask this morning is, you know, what do we do with loss in our own lives? You, by the way, you might be thinking, Rob, you didn't really answer the first question, which is, you know, how do we, what do we think theologically about loss in light of God's providence? Here's what I'll say. The whole book is about that. We're only in week two. But I do believe we're gonna learn a lot because this is the living word of God for us today. There's a reason we're studying this text right now. But I wanna talk about the losses in our lives. And to get there, I wanna take you back to Lloyd's two lessons from last week because as I thought about it, I thought we need to spend more time in those. And I'll connect some dots to our text this morning. Here's what Lloyd shared last week. These are hard truths. No one gets through this life without weeping. Remember, that's the key word of chapter one. Point two, the providence of God that crushes us is the providence that gives us life. If you really think about both of these, these are hard. The first one seems kind of unfair. It does to me. No one gets through this life without weeping. Why would God allow life to be that way if he loves us? Worse, if he's in control of all things, does that mean he designed life to be this way? Now, now you're wrestling a little bit theologically. I hope so. That's, that's, what, that's what we want to do. If the first statement seems a little unfair, the second statement seems very hard, almost impossible to fully believe. Providence of God crushes. Rob, are you saying I'm to believe that the losses in my life are as much from God's hand as the blessings? Now, some losses you can go there with. There are parts of your life, you know, I remember a breakup in high school. Actually, it was college. That was a different thing in high school. <laughs> there was a breakup in college that I thought like, man, this is the worst thing that's ever happened to me. And you know you know how it is. Thank God for unanswered prayers. There's some, Somebody wrote a song about that. Because I look back now and I'm like, praise God I didn't end, end up with that girl. Now, so we all have those kinds of losses in our life where I'm like, yeah, I see God's hand in that. But what about the losses that are really close to home right now? What about losses that just are are so painful? Some of you in this room know, know, know this feeling that you can't breathe. Are we to understand those things are as much from God's hand as the blessings Where does sin enter the equation? Where does fallenness enter the equation? All these kinds of things. Just wrestle with this. I hope you're wrestling with this. I don't want us to take it too lightly. If you find yourself struggling in the tension, it's only because the losses in your life are real and you believe God is loving. So what do we do with the losses in our lives? The first thing I wanna encourage us to do is to acknowledge them. There's no sense pretending losses are not there. There's no sense pretending that they don't matter. There's no sense saying, well, everybody hurts. Everybody has loss. Mine are less than some, more than others. Yeah. You are not doing justice to the brokenness, fallenness, mess of the the fall, you know, the fall of creation by sort of just dismissing the losses that are around you. By the way, we're going to see Naomi explicitly acknowledge the losses in her life later, starting next week and then the week that follows. She does not hold anything back. She lets God have it. And before we judge her too harshly, I want to encourage us to carry the tension in our own lives. Ultimately, God could have prevented your loss. He did not. When we acknowledge our loss, when we, when we name it, I actually think we're honoring God because we're saying what's true, and we're saying, God, I have enough faith to bring something really hard in my life in front of you and say, why? What's going on? And if you feel anger toward him, all this oftentimes is a part of God's engaging you fully. Show up with him. Be real with him. One of our core values here is courageously real. We tend to think about that you know, in fellowship groups and being honest with each other. Let's also apply that to our relationship with God. Let's be courageously real in our relationships with God. So that's number one, is to acknowledge what is true. When we were planning this worship service a couple months back, we we have a monthly meeting where Lloyd and myself and the worship team and the production team, we look out six to eight weeks ahead in all the services and we choose songs. We talk about if we're gonna have any visual illustrations and this kind of thing, when we're gonna do baptisms, these kinds of things. And uh, we got to this week and we thought to ourselves, how do we sort of create this tension? How do we help our body feel the tension that the book is presenting, the theological tension here Naomi's tension? One of the ways we've been doing this, if you've noticed the last two weeks, our our music has been really stripped down. It's been acoustic, you know, it's been lower. Last week, it was just Brian on the piano. What we're trying to do is sort of integrate in the way we're singing, the way we're expressing our faith into the reality of where we are at the book. When we get to the end of the book, I can't get ready for the drums and stuff to be back. You know, some of you will roll your eyes. and be like, oh, I like the other stuff later. Some of you will be like, yeah, I wanna just be loud and proud and all these kinds of things. We're gonna take that journey together. So that's part of it. But this particular week, we asked the question, what if we could invite our body to name the losses in their lives? Not put your name on it, not, not, you know, not, not share personal, you know, your dirty laundry, so to speak, whatever. But what if we could all see what we're all wrestling with on a screen somehow to know that we're not alone? We're going to do that. This is just an anonymous thing. There's no way of of us knowing or tracking what you write in, but there's a QR code on the screen. And I want to invite everybody, if you're watching online too, you too, just hold up your phone to that QR code. If if the QR code doesn't work, you can go to that website and punch in that code. But let me tell you what this is. You're going to go to this website, and, you know, you don't have to, you pull it up just to see if you're curious, just pull it up. I promise there's no, like, evil virus or anything like this, Okay. Uh, you go to that website, so either scan it or, or type in those, those things. By the way, if you scan it, you do not have to type in the code, okay? You get all the way there if you scan it. So what you'll see is, so it'll, say, it'll say, name your loss, and there's just a blank. Go ahead right now. Type in a word. Type in a phrase. Type in a loss in your life. It could be something you're, you, you've, you've recently lost, something you've lost even a long time ago, that still is a real part of your life. Let's be courageously real. There's no names attached to these. There's no way we can track your device. Or anything. That'd never be our intention. We want to be known. We want to be together as a body. We, we want to proclaim what's true and invite God into these spaces. So as these start coming in, you're going to, they're going to show up on the screen. And Michael, whenever you have those ready, you can just put them on the screen, and we're going to have a chance. This is real time. And, and the ones that are, are bigger are the ones that are mentioned multiple times. And I'm just going to give us two or three minutes of silence right now for us to read the losses in this room. I wanna encourage us to do one more thing with our losses this morning. Michael, you can go ahead and take that off the screen. One more thing I wanna encourage us to do with these this morning. By God's providence, I came across something in a book I was reading as I was preparing for this message. The book I was reading had nothing to do with the message. It was A God of the Garden by Andrew Peterson many of you know Andrew or know of Andrew. He's a singer-songwriter, a Christian singer-songwriter, and he writes books as well. He's written fiction and nonfiction books. This book is a memoir of his life. And he all throughout the book, he's using metaphors of, of trees. He gets to this one chapter where he talks about the hardest time in his life, a, a season where he was just in a dark, dark place of depression, maybe 10, 12 years ago. And the way he describes it, he used this metaphor. He was like, it just kept raining. Have you guys ever been in a place of life where it's like the sun will not come out? It's just rain. And, and he, he said, I, I, I prayed about it. it. Kept raining. I prayed, God, just let me see the sun again. You know, Let, let me just feel life again. It kept raining. He finally got the feeling that God was deliberately doing this to him sending rain unrelentingly into his life. So he did what songwriters do. He wrote a song about it, not necessarily intending to ever record it. Here's an excerpt. I tried to be brave, but I hid in the dark. I sat in that cave, prayed for a spark to light up the pain that remained in my heart, but the rain kept falling There's a woman at home she's praying for light and my children are there and they love me in spite of the shadow I know that they see in my eyes and the rain keeps falling So he got to a certain place in that song and he didn't know how to finish it so he put it on the shelf until in God's providence he discovered a little poem by Lucy Shaw called Forecast. Here's the poem. See if we can get this on the screen. Planting seeds inevitably changes my feelings about rain. Thanks to those words, he knew how to finish the song. But before he wrote the words down, he went out into the yard with their daughter and he planted some trees. And then he finished the song. Here's how it goes. My daughter and I put the seeds in the dirt and every day now we've been watching the earth for a sign that this death will give way to a birth and the rain is falling down on the soil where the sorrow is laid and the secret of life is igniting the grave. And I'm dying to live, but I'm learning to wait and the rain is falling. This morning, we're gonna plant some seeds, literal and spiritual. I've been carrying in my pocket this little packet of wildflower seeds And up until this point, they've just been sitting right here, but I know something about seeds, same thing you know, and that is seeds won't grow until they're planted. They won't grow until they're put under the earth. What's required for these seeds to grow is for me to acknowledge their purpose. They're meant for beauty and fullness, even though right now they're just little bitty seeds. So I'm gonna come over to this box. I know you can't see it, but we've got soil in this box and I'm gonna dig down in the soil. What's interesting about planting seeds is, is you have to you know, move the soil. You've gotta dig down. You've gotta disrupt what's there, sometimes even violently so, to get that soil to move. And then you can plant your seeds. You can pour the seeds down. And then what do you do next? Well, it's a little burial. You cut the seeds off from light. You cut the seeds off from air. You plant them down deep. And then you water them. And if we're talking about these seeds representing the losses in our lives, we water them with our tears. To plant a seed is to entrust it to God, you can't make it grow. We put it in the earth and entrust it to God. The losses in our lives are like these seeds. We we, we plant them down deep with care. We water them with our tears. But as soon as the seeds go in the earth and the water makes contact, they start changing. Something starts happening that's invisible to us. And so if you were to come up here, or maybe after the service and look in this box, you just say, it's just a box of dirt. I'd say, oh no. Do you remember that phrase that we said earlier? I want us to say that phrase again. Say it with me. There's more than meets the eye. Over the next couple of months as we study this book, we're going to keep watching this box. We'll we'll make sure it gets sunlight. We'll keep it watered. You know, we'll keep it warm until it's warm enough outside. By the time we get to Easter, by the time we get to the end of Ruth, we're going to we're going to see something in that box. We're going to keep our eyes. We're going to keep waiting while God is working. Our invitation to life this morning is for you to do this too. I have a packet, or we have a packet of seeds in the back as you go, and they'll be available to you. Pick one up on your way out this morning. And I want to encourage you to plant these. you got to keep them indoors for a little while until the danger of frost is through, and then maybe take them outside and plant them outside. But find a pot, find a planter. Go get one if you don't have one. Plant these little seeds. It's, It's nothing much. It's just these little wildflowers. But they're going to be beautiful when they pop out of the earth. Plant some seeds this week. Start watching and waiting for God to grow them into something beautiful. As we walk through Ruth, we'll be watching our seeds. How beautiful and appropriate that we get to end our worship service this morning with a baptism. And uh, before the family comes up, I just wanna say a couple of things about baptism. When I was out there worshiping with you all earlier, it just caught my eye how similar this box looks to that box. We didn't even plan it that way, honestly. Uh, the other thing I think that box has always looked like to me is a coffin. It appropriately looks like a coffin. When we follow Jesus in baptism, you know, what, what we do is we, we, we are buried with him in a sense. That's the formula we'll use is when we baptize Jonah this morning, I'll say he, he's buried, you are buried with Christ in baptism and then raised to walk in the newness of life. And so I want you to think about something. Just last thing I want to say to you before we do this baptism In John 12, 24, Jesus says, unless a seed falls to the ground and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it can bear much fruit. Jesus became a seed. He took all the loss and the sin and the brokenness and the disruption of God's good creation. He put it on himself. He said, I will go under the earth. The tears of the father and of sense, the whole world will water this soil and the father will raise me back up. And that is exactly what happened. And because Jesus became the seed, we can all be a part of the fruit. We are this morning evidence of The seed of Jesus sprouting through the grave, bearing forth and being multiplied through 2,000 years into Franklin, Tennessee of all places. Come on. And this baptism this morning is one bud from the seed of Jesus Christ. Kids, come on down. Come on down. Our kids are coming in from from the Learning Center. They're gonna be right up front here. They're gonna watch this. We're gonna all be together. Jonah, you come on up too. band's coming up. They're gonna play for us a little bit want Jonah Pugh to come on up. All right, Jonah. and Family of Jonah, come on up on the stage as well. We want you guys to be here as well for this. Come on up. Y'all can use these steps right here. I'm gonna move this out of the way. I'm gonna move my, yeah, use those steps too. Great, use these, move this out of the way. So Jonah, I wanna remind you what baptism is. And I know you know this because we've already taught, but it's not the baptism that saves you. You know that. Baptism never saved anybody. Baptism is a sign that Jonah has put his faith in Jesus Christ. Y'all come on around. Come on around. And what we get to do now, Jonah, as your family of faith, is we get to witness and hear about what God has done in your life. And You're going to go under the water and you're going to come back up. All right, microphone. Here it is. So, Jonah, I'm going to start with you, and I want to ask you a couple of questions. The first question I want to ask is, Tell us when you came to believe in Jesus. I'm gonna hold this for you because you probably shouldn't put wet hands on this microphone, okay? So tell us about when you came to believe in Jesus. So I've been believing him since, um, I've been leaving him for my whole life, but um, I let him into my heart when I was seven years old. And how old are you now? I'm 10. Okay, so three years ago. And, and you remember that time when you let him in your heart? Yes, sir. I'm so glad you chose to do that. And, and uh, you know what? He's had a plan from you from the, from the very start. Mm-hmm. And he knew that you were going to let him into your heart at seven years old. And so we, we are so thankful. Thank you for sharing that with us. Mm-hmm. And Jonah, tell us right today, right now, why are you choosing to do this this morning? Uh, I'm choosing it because I, I want people to know that I actually love God and I go to church not to just get it over with and to actually do church and attend in it and learn about God. I love that. Did you guys all hear that? Come on. I do not do church just to get it over with. Okay, there were some adults in this room that needed to hear that this morning. <laughs> hey, Joan, I was thinking about this this morning, and I thought, what a cool name for someone that's being baptized, right? You, you know that story, of course, don't you? Yeah. And he went into the water, and guess what? He went into the water in great fear, Mm-hmm. And he actually thought he was gonna die when he got into the water. And what happened? Uh, he was in there for three days and he kept on praying and he got spit out. Exactly. So he got swallowed <laughs> by this giant fish, right? Because God protected him. God rescued him. That's mm-hmm. exactly what God has done. God has rescued you. Okay. And you're gonna go under the water, but you're not gonna stay there. You're gonna pop back up because you're gonna be raised to walk in fullness of life because of Jesus. So Jonah, I'm just... I'm excited to baptize you this morning. But before we get to that, I wanna ask mom and dad just to share a word of encouragement with Jonah. Jonah, it's one of my greatest honors to be your mom. You bring light and joy to all who know you. Before you were ever born, I prayed that you would be courageous for Jesus. And through these trials and losses that you've endured the past three years, you have shown tremendous courage, forgiveness, and love. You've trusted and continue to trust that Jesus has you and that he has the final say. Like this sermon today, you have embraced loss, and yet without unwavering faith, you've never questioned the providence of God or his steadfast love for you. It is remarkable to watch as your mom. May God grant you many years, and may you always show courage for him. I am so proud of you for making this decision to be baptized and trust that God will use your story for his glory. Amen. Amen. Thank you. Uh, it's so wonderful to see our children <clears throat> walking with Jesus. What an amazing thing. Um, Jonah, you are my brother in Christ. I am your earthly father, but you have a heavenly father. And there'll be days where I fail you and I don't live up to what I should be, but your father in heaven will never let you down. And I'm so proud of the faith that you have. I've been praying this verse for the last few weeks, 1 Peter 5, 6, and 7. Therefore, humble yourself under the mighty hand of God that he may exalt you at the proper time, casting your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Be of sober spirit. Be on the alert because your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion. I love you. I'm very proud of you. Amen. Amen. Thank you, guys. All right, Jonah, before I baptize you, I got to take this off because, you know, I don't mind getting wet, but I don't want to be a flopping wet mess. So I want to ask you two, just two more quick questions. Number one, do you believe that Jesus is God's son? Yes. Are you being baptized today to show us that you are committed to following him. Yes, sir. Then it is our privilege to baptize you in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. You're buried with Christ in baptism, raised to walk in newness of life.